0: All right, um, I'm going to go ahead and get started here. Um, Well, good morning. Uh, Good to see you again this week. Um, Picking back up uh, where we left off here in, I guess, the third week of the Forgotten Characters series. And uh, uh, I've never used a a mic like this before, but the last one I had, I don't even know if I have it on right. Um, The last one I had kept rubbing up, uh, you know, kind of against the mic. And uh, I was told that that was causing some, feedback, um, or for some uh, issues some folks who might be using some hearing aids. So I'm trying the other one to see how that works out. Um, but if I look a little odd, if I have it on wrong, excuse me for that. <laughs> All right, so today we're, we're picking back up, like I said, in the forgotten characters uh, of the Bible series that we're doing. And a couple weeks ago, I did a lesson on Demas uh, there in the New Testament um, in some of Paul's letters. Uh, that he wrote, and he kind of showed up there in the, in the end of three of the letters and about how Demas uh, forsook Paul there kind of at the end of his life because he loved the world uh, more than he loved serving God. And so this week, our, our forgotten character, our characters, uh, if you might want to look at it that way, uh, it's going to be sort of one story, but there's multiple people in it. Um, it, is going to come from the Old Testament. And um, couple, a couple of weeks ago, I, I told you, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily a, a biblical uh, scholar and um, so I didn't necessarily have have the training uh, or how to pronounce all these words that can be found in the Old Testament. And this is where, where I'm really going to get in some trouble with it. Um, it's a little bit different there in the New Testament, so maybe I don't have the uh, phonetic pronunciation of these words all the way down, but um, it it reminds me uh, of the scene in this movie. Um, uh, it's... It's this it's this pirate movie, and um, and it's it's famous. I'm sure a lot of you know it, but uh, it's in the first first movie. And there's there's a scene as they approach sort of the climax uh, of this movie, and there's these two pirates, and uh, they're sort of the comic relief uh, in this movie. And and they're and like I said, they're approaching the climax of this movie, and these two pirates are in this little rowboat, and they're kind of going toward the island. And you know, one of the pirates, pirate number one, he's rowing toward the island. And he begins to notice, you know, pirate number two, where he's looking down and he's reading something. And um, so his reaction, you know, probably because he's not rowing, is saying, you know, what are you doing? And he says, you know, well, I'm reading. And he says, what are you reading? You, you can't read. Um, he says, well, I'm reading the Bible. And he says, how are you reading the Bible? You, you can't read. And he goes, well, it's the Bible. You get credit just for trying. Uh, <laughs> And so perhaps I'm in a little bit of a similar situation today with some of the pronunciation of these names and cities, and so hopefully you'll give me credit just for trying. Well, today we're going to be primarily in the book of Judges, uh, but that's not where we're going to start before you start flipping there. Uh, But that's where our character will come from today. Um, So to get to Judges, we're going to do a little bit of of background um, for Judges. And so that means we'll actually begin in Numbers Thirteen, Numbers thirteen, chapter thirteen. Numbers chapter thirteen, and Carrie went over this a little bit um, when talking about Korah last week. Um, kind of he kind of glossed over it in sort of his story, uh, but we're going to go back over it a little bit here today, and um, we're going to go and start in verse 1 in Numbers 13. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spout to the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. Dropping down to verse 17. It says, Then Moses sent them to spout the land of Canaan. He said to them, Go up this way into the south and up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell there in it are strong or weak, few or many. Whether, they land, or whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether they're forced or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was this of the season, the first ripe grapes. So they went down into the promised land, and what some of the spies had to say, you know, we kind of go down into verse 25, and it, it says there, and they returned from spying out the land after after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation that the joint of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites. The Amalekites, excuse me, dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, The land to which they have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants." And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Then we saw the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so, <clears throat> so were we in their sight. And so you continue on, it kind of ends there, and you got chapter 14. And I'll kind of, so we're not spending so much time just reading. Um, chapter 14, all the congregation sort of lifted up their voice after they got this bad report. And they sort of cry out to Moses and Aaron and, and basically say, we should have been left back in Egypt, you know, if this was going to be the case that what you've led us to out here in the wilderness to these people. We should have been left back in Egypt. At least there we would have had, you know, clothes on our backs, food to eat, you know, something to do each and every day. But Moses and Aaron, you have brought us to our destruction. And so they, they decided, you know, kind of summarizing there to let them elect a new leader and that they could return to Egypt. And then you have, of course, Caleb and Joshua, Moses and Aaron, you, you know, try to stick up or you know, argue back against them. And then they decide that they were going to, to stone them. Uh, and so you have this kind of this uproar of the Israelites in this moment and this rebelling. And it kind of says there right in verse 10, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle, meeting before all the children of Israel. And so it, it had gotten so bad that the Lord had to appear, or his voice had to appear. And so we have this moment uh, with the Lord and Moses and the Israelites. And he tells them, tells them through Moses, that he is going to strike them down, and through Moses, he's going to make an even greater nation. But Moses intercedes on his behalf, uh, on behalf of the people. And eventually, God relents on this original idea and he decides that he will not kill everyone, but instead those that are under the age of twenty, and Joshua and Caleb, and though those people will live to see the Promised Land, and because they, uh, and then as well, they're going to wander forty years in the wilderness before they get to the Promised Land. And so, something I want to pull from that is just sort of, if you just think a minute for what what it's contained right there, just wow, the the relationship that Moses had to have. With, with God. And, you know, it's not just a good relationship, like something may be going great, or, you know, just talking to them or something like that. In this moment, God is angry at his people, at the Israelites. But Moses intercedes on behalf of his people. You know, I'm the youngest of three brothers, and, um, and I guess it could be said, uh, uh you know, that maybe I got in a little bit less trouble than my older two brothers uh, growing up. Uh, so there were many times when I was growing up when they were getting in trouble, but I wasn't. And, and let me tell you this, Bobby and Carol Shiver were not scared to use a belt uh, on their kids. And uh, so there would be times um, that I would see my older brothers, um, the belt was used on them and... I don't know if there was ever a time I really wanted to intercede for them. Um, I can just say that, um, you know, that they were doing something. And in that moment, you have, you have a parent, either your mother or your, your father, and, and they're mad in that moment or they're upset, uh, in that moment at their child. Um, and so even if I had wanted to, maybe the wheels in my head might start turning, you know, maybe this isn't the best moment. To do that, mom and dad, maybe they're a little bit upset at this time. Maybe I'll talk to them later, you know, as if I could do that as the child. But, uh, you know, maybe I could tell them later, say, well, you know, maybe it wasn't as bad as you thought. Um, you know, maybe you, we should reconsider that. And so that's this moment that Moses has uh, on behalf there with the Israelites. God is mad and angry with his children. And Moses intercedes on behalf of them. You know Moses had to know the type of relationship he had with God to be able to do that and not just be struck down in that moment. And so this really was that you can keep your mouth shut if you really want it to, Moses. God had already sort of promised he was going to begin again with with you, that you were safe. So Moses could have kept his mouth shut and that he would have been okay. But Moses loved his people just like God truly loved his people. They loved the Israelites. And sort of the second thing I want to draw from is still in that chapter 14, starting in verse 20, it says the following, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned and according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. A little something, kind of going back there in Exodus. We didn't read it, but I'm sure a lot of you may know. But if not, I'll kind of summarize it. Um, When the Israelites have been led out of Egypt, and they're sort of there in that sort of beginning there in the wilderness, you know, they don't have really the technology or anything that that we have today. Uh, They don't have a smartphone or something they can pull out. Uh, Probably not really a portable compass or, or anything like that. They don't really have anything, and so... It, it would be like if we took you to another land and we just spun you around ten times and we told you to find XYZ town. Uh, you probably couldn't do it. Uh, you'd probably need some sort of help. You, you would need a guide, something to, to bring you to that destination. Um, and so the Lord in all of his wisdom did that. Uh, by day he had the, the pillar of, of clouds and by night the pillar of fire and he led his people there in the wilderness as they were journeying around. And then you have... Um, Other things like the manna uh, that fell from heaven uh, to provide sustenance for for his children as they wandered around. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a a place uh, that is of a similar climate. Uh, I haven't. Uh, Just what I've read and just the things that I've studied, you know, there's not sort of those readily and available sort of source of goods. They can't plant crops. They can't do things like that. They basically had all they could carry with them from Egypt. So food and water would have been an issue. And so during this entire time, even up until this point, when they've spied out the promised land, God has been working miracles in their life each and every day with these pillars that lead them around, with the food that they're able to eat. God has been working a miracle every day. And you know, I would like to think that I would be different if I saw a miracle every day. That it would enlighten me, that the reminder of God's power and love just wouldn't get old. And yet, maybe I shouldn't be so astounded, and you know, at these Israelites, at the actions that they choose to take. And maybe I wouldn't be any different uh, than that way of thinking because it still sort of happens today, and it's happening right now. As you've heard in the Wednesday night Bible class, um, some of the things that, that that we've been covering there is how God's word has made it to us today. I know at least a couple of weeks ago how it has persevered and how we can uh, be assured that the, the word that we have is the word of God, uh, even in comparison to other forms of what may be considered classical literature. That if anything where we don't have the original document, it's far and away the Bible is the number one thing that we have where it's the most accurate, it's the most tested, that we can be assured that what we have is good. that it is the perfect work of God and it's persevered through time and it's as credible as any text that we have. Truly, the Holy Bible that you hold in your hands, that you hold in your phone, it's a miracle. A lot of things had to happen for it to get here. A lot of sacrifice, a lot of hard work. It's a miracle. And this collection of books, letters, and the gospel has persevered in a way that no book can lay claim to. Truly a miracle. And yet I hold this miracle in the palm of my own hand and I have it on my phone and it's always within my reach. And I stumble. I make mistakes. I'm not as diligent as I should be in my prayer life. I don't study as much as I can. Perhaps as some of you too. I got a miracle every day. But I forget. You see, sometimes that maybe I might have been like the Israelites, sometimes on the 300th day, that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire where it's just not doing it for me anymore. The manna from heaven, it's just gotten a little stale or I'm a little tired of it. I can't say for sure if I'd be any different. I got a miracle in my hand each and every day at my fingertips. But there's one thing I'm sure of. I don't know what I would have been like back thousands of years ago, what decisions I would have made if I would have been a Joshua or a Caleb or like the ten of their spies. There's one thing I'm sure of. Even though I may make mistakes, even though I don't relish or, or, or if I... I don't value the miracle I have at my fingertips each and every day, that just like Moses intercedes on behalf of his people to God, Christ is up there interceding for you and for me today. He has that sort of relationship with God to advocate for us when we fall short. And so remember that as we continue to study, and from the very beginning, that these people, these Israelite people, the chosen people, they doubted God. The vast majority of them did. And they didn't really listen to Him, even though they had every reason under the sun to follow Him. They doubted Him. They didn't think He'd follow through on His promises. And so that, that is the backdrop as we get into Judges. Uh, Moses has passed away. He has led the people up to the promised land. Uh, and we have the book of Judges where Joshua has has taken over, or excuse me, the book of Joshua, and Joshua has began that conquest of the promised land. But as Joshua closes and we get to Judges, it's not complete. Taking over the promised land. Everything hasn't been conquered like God has ordered them to do. There are still outsiders, still people that are not God's children in that land. And God's ordered them to take over that land. You see, the land is occupied, and it is occupied by strong and thriving nations of people. And we see this over and over again in the Bible, that God has commanded His people to take this land. It is their promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. And so as we begin the book of Judges, Joshua's passed away, and the Israelites have not fully conquered this land like they've been commanded to. And what do they do? As you can see there in the beginning, uh, kind of as Judges continues on, What do they do? Well, they begin to do evil in the Lord's sight. And how do they do this? Well, they do this by following and bowing down to other gods, namely Baal. And why are they doing this? Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, if you could turn there really quickly. Verse 5. Why are they following and bowing down to other gods? Why have they fallen out of step with the Lord's commandments? Judges 3, verse 5. Thus the children of Israel dwelt... Among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And they served their gods. Huh. Really? The, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites? You don't say? That we didn't clear them out and that's what happened? That we began the Israelites began to, f- to fall away to worship other gods. You mean those people God specifically mentioned back in Deuteronomy chapter 20 to utterly destroy because you would end up serving their gods? Well, there's many more examples, but I don't know if you need many more to see an example of God's omniscience. But well, there you go. And so as usual, the Israelites were succumbing to the temptation of foreign nations and foreign gods And so what would God's response be to this? What would God decide to do with his children? Well, he set up judges. And so what are judges? Judges are not like how we think our judges are today. Uh, I have a lot of interaction with with judges. Um, you, You know, on the criminal side of things, it sort of works like this. Uh, you have a prosecutor, uh, which is what I do, and then you got a defense attorney, um, and the defense attorney is representing their client, and the prosecutor is representing the wishes of the state. And, and you can have a settlement agreement, which where you come to terms over whatever has been charged, um, or you can end up having a trial. Uh, and either way, whether you have a settlement agreement or after trial, if someone is found guilty, uh, and it's presented to the judge, The judge imposes judgment, and that's a great definition. I know it. I use the term within it. I know it's great. Um, And so they impose judgment. And so it's basically to say this, that what the judge says is what goes, that that's going to be the law, or that's how this is going to be handled. It's an order. Uh, Judges give out orders, uh, and that they're supposed to be followed, and that if you don't follow them, Uh, what the natural result of that is to be held in contempt of court. Um, And so that's what our judges today are sort of like. Uh, They don't really dispense advice. Um, Judges, in fact, can't give you legal advice. So if you know a judge, don't ask them for legal advice.
1: Um,
0: They actually can't do that. Um, And they're certainly not like the judges that we see here in the book of judges. In the book of judges, these, these judges are more like warriors or strong leaders who led the Israelites into battle. And though we're about to see that the one we're dealing with today did actually dispense some advice as well. But they're more like strong military leaders for the Israelites during this time. It's not like how you normally think of judges today where you come and present your problems um, and a resolution is reached. Though the character we're doing today does do that from time to time, but she is sort of unique to that. But Judges chapter 2, verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly away from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. And so that's sort of the lead up to judges and what judges are the judges are about and what sort of backdrop of the Israelites of why they're in this situation and why they need judges uh, because they didn't fully conquer the land that they spied out and they got there and they didn't fully take out the you know the people that they were ordered to God by to take out to make this land your own because it's promised to you. And so that's why they have these judges to sort of continue that. And so today I would like us to focus on just uh, one particular judge. You may have caught it. Uh, by the pronoun that I used earlier, but when I said she, we're looking at Deborah. Uh, And so Deborah is there in Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be. All right. Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When he was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them to the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth and Hagoyim And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So stop right there real quick. We can see here a few things, a few things about Deborah. One of the most obvious things is that Deborah is a woman. um, You know, sort of stands out because we don't, through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, we don't frequently see uh, a female leader or someone in a position of power uh, with the Israelites or in the New Testament at all. And so that's a unique thing that we have here. Um, And but the next thing is a prophetess um, that we see another characteristic or an ability that she had. Um, and that we're going to see here in just a little bit her put that to use. And that the other thing was judging Israel at this time, a judge. And so this really speaks to her ability to lead, uh, the fact that she was able to lead Israel um, as a woman during this time. where In the ancient times, of just in general, it, most cultures are of such a way where might makes right of whoever is the strongest, the most powerful, that that person, what they say is what goes. That's the right thing, no matter if it's corrupt or bad or if it's good. But the strongest person might mix right. And so we see that she's a prophetess and that she's a judge. And so uh, really dealing with a sort of a jack-of-all-trades and um, sort of person who had the ability to do many things there for the children of Israel. And so perhaps she shouldn't be a forgotten character and be given the respect that she's due. But continuing on, verse 5. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up for her, came up to her for judgment. Okay, so stopping right there again. So she would actually give out some advice. <laughs> I know I said a lot of times, you know, the judges aren't like that, but we see this specifically with Deborah, uh, that she would give out, you know, advice or judgment. Um, And so she actually did that role uh, as well. And we don't really see that with the other judges there uh, in the book of Judges. And so continuing on, verse six, then she sent out and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali. And he said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy, uh, deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river of Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. So notice notice something here. We're going to stop there again. Notice the past tense of what was said. Has not the Lord commanded you? So we can draw something from that, that Barak had already been commanded to do something by the Lord. And Deborah has had to show up on the scene. That at some point... God told Barak, take 10,000 troops and rise up against Sisera, and I will deliver you from him. But for some reason, Barak hasn't done that. And so it takes Deborah coming to him and reminding him of what the Lord has commanded him. So for some reason, Barak has delayed. He has not done immediately what the Lord has required of him. Starting again in verse 8. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you would not go with me, I will not go. All right, stop again. All right, so maybe here's a little bit of that insight of why Barack had not left yet. Maybe he was a bit scared. Um, you know, it's, it's nothing to, you know, it's not something easy. It's not an easy task that God has given him to do uh, from an earthly or worldly standpoint. It's not something easy to go to war Against these, this individual who has nine hundred iron chariots, and you're going to have ten thousand foot soldiers. Does it sound too great on paper? <laughs> but perhaps maybe we see a little bit something different. Maybe Deborah was just that formidable of a leader, of a judge, of a warrior. And perhaps with Deborah on his side, he believed we stand a chance. If Deborah's with me, I can go. I can do it. Maybe he had that sort of belief that Deborah could help him. But continuing on in in verse 9, So she said, I will surely go with you, and nevertheless there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went with him. Okay, so stop there again. So Deborah sort of thrown this back in his face, uh, as we can read there that, Brock, if I go with you, if someone goes with you, you're not going to get the glory. God has given you this opportunity to take 10,000 men and overcome the odds in this case. But if I go with you, a woman is going to get the glory. And perhaps maybe in that moment, Brock said, I don't care. Deborah's already, um, you know, strong, tough, a formidable leader. Um, you know, what do I care? As long as I get to live. And he's probably thinking that moment, maybe it's going to be Deborah who's going to get Get that glory. So continue in verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, um, Jethro. Um, that's who. That's another name, the father-in-law of Moses. Um, I don't know if yours has in parentheses there, Jethro. But that's who we're calling back to, is Moses' uh, father-in-law, his wife Miriam. Um, and so this is his people. They had separated themselves from the Kenites, and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were there with him, from Heroshef Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. So maybe here is a little bit more of an insight, of again, of why Barak is scared. 900 iron chariots are nothing to sneeze at particularly if you had foot soldiers. But Barak forgot, just like the Israelites so often did, just who was on their side if he would heed the Lord's commandments. Continuing in verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, "Up, For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from the mount to Bor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Haggaiim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So just as God promised through Deborah, an absolute victory was had by the Israelites. And so if you can just think here for a moment, as we see again and again, it's truly amazing what we see in the Bible, what actually happens when people follow what God has commanded them to do. When you follow God's will. Continuing verse 17. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink. And covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there any man here, you shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple, and, went, and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him, and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. And so that there is is kind of the conclusion of of chapter 4. And we kind of have not one, but two amazing women of God who did what the Lord commanded them to do and what really in that moment no man really wanted to do. And so just as Deborah prophesies, because Barak took Deborah into battle, it was not ultimately him who took the life of Sisera but of another but of another woman of Jael and the woman that who received the glory for ultimately the, the slaying of Sisera so verse 23 so on that day God subdued Jabin king of Canaan in the presence of the of children of Israel and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan and so that there is um, chapter 4. And we're running a little bit behind on time, Uh, and so I will kind of just give a little brief summary of what chapter 5 is. Chapter 5 is uh, basically a poetic retelling uh, of chapter 4 with perhaps a little bit more detail here and there, but just uh, a song, uh, poetic retelling uh, from Deborah and Barak. And so it goes on and it tells, you know, sort of that retelling in that sort of poetic form, and you get to something that I want to point out here at the very end of chapter 5 when, it, when they wrap up sort of that retelling when God's children have persevered. So the land had rest for 40 years. And so that's sort of the end of Deborah uh, or of what we know in that time. But I think that is significant. So the land had rest for 40 years. That the children of Israel, then there's a very tough time when they're out in the wilderness and it's a very time full of war with other nations, that they were able to have rest and peace for 40 years and to have triumph for 40 years. And 40 years is a long time. It's a very long time when you think about the greatness of Israel and when it was at its strongest as far as... uh, with its military power, when you think of King David and you think of King Solomon, how long did they rule? Each of them ruled for 40 years. So Deborah accomplished something that they did, that she was the judge of the Israelites for 40 years, and they knew peace during that time. So 40 years, that little kind of that end of that, her story, that isn't just something to throw away, but it really tells the significance and the ability to lead that Deborah had that she judged, was a judge for the Israelites for 40 years. And so what can we draw from this as we kind of get here and we have a little bit less than 10 minutes to go? What can we draw from from Deborah and from the story of Judges 4 and 5? Well, first, and the most obvious thing, is that women are capable of amazing things in their service to the Lord just as capable as men are, and definitely in some areas of worship and service, perhaps even more capable. Yes, the Lord has set up uh, an order in how we are to worship and how men are to lead, but we need to look no further than the story of Deba, or Proverbs 31, to see the value of having strong and wise women that serve the Lord. So when you have a church that has those type of women workers, don't waste that resource and encourage them to serve in the ways that they can And encourage them to train up up the young women in a like manner. Encourage them and provide them the resources and the necessary tools so they they can thrive in their role just as the male leaders of the church thrive in theirs. And that's something we can pull from Deborah. Obviously, the Lord has laid out and Christ has laid out in the New Testament uh, the order of the church and how men are to lead, but it is vital to understand how much of a resource Um, and how beneficial it is to the church when women are given the ability to succeed in their areas of expertise. And that's something to, to consider, something to pour more resources in if we're already not. And from what I've seen, been here, it is something that we do pour resources in. It is something that the women of this church have the ability to thrive. But moving on from that, secondly, something that we can pull from this is that God is a God that keeps His promises. That just like how He promised that if they left the foreign nations in the promised land, that they would depart from Him, that they would worship idols, and they would lose His divine protection. Just like how He promised that if they drive out the nations that were in the promised land, that they would know peace, just like in the story of Deborah. That if they drive them out, they too could know peace. He promised them that. And God keeps His promises to us to this day and we have to have a faith in Him and His Son. And we we're reminded of this on several occasions, but just a couple of things in, in the New Testament, a couple of verses I just want to point out. John chapter 14, and verse 1, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and I go to prepare a place. Um, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And so Christ to the disciples in that moment promised to them there are mansions there waiting, that there is a home in heaven for his followers. Uh, more specifically to his disciples he was talking to in that moment. But Christ has promised us. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And so the Lord is not slack with his promises. It is not something that you have to be fearful. uh, That when your time comes, when anybody's time comes and ends here on this earth, that God is only going to give us 50% of what he talked about that heaven or eternity to Him just really won't live up to the hype. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. So thirdly and lastly, something I wanted to point out and something we can learn from is that the continual regression of the Israelites back into sin and idol worship as seen before and after Deborah. And this continues to happen because it was convenient to them, And it was easy for them to do it. That they only served God consistently when there was a strong leader, like Deborah, that guides them, or when God sort of slaps them back in the line, and they become seemingly this prisoner of the moment. Or of each generation, each time this happens. And I truly believe because most of them, just like people today, they just want to live a comfortable life. They just want to live in peace. They just want to do what comes easy to them and, and to get to an easy life and get there the easiest way that they know how. And they don't want to stick their neck out like when Deborah um, or when God first ordered Barak to fight in that battle, and Deborah had to come and remind him what the Lord had commanded him to do. It would have been easy to stay. It's what the Israelites wanted to do. It would have been easy to go back to Egypt. It would have been easy to remain in Egypt, but God told them what they need to do. They just wanted to live a comfortable life. They wanted to do what was easy. And I can't help but to think that's us from time to time. That we are those ancient Israelites, that this is our society, and that this is how we live. We are just doing what comes easy to us, what comes natural, what keeps us most in our bubble. Are we truly living a life that says, I want to live in heaven for eternity with God? Are we living a life that says, God, I trust you and your promises and I trust the promises that you have made because you never have and you never will break them? Are we truly living a life that says, I want to live in heaven for eternity with God? And just think on what that means here for just a second. Living a life that says, I want to go to eternity with God, with eternity with God. What does that mean? You know, this isn't an eternity or an eternal life of just singing Kumbaya or God's family to one another. Uh, it isn't simply an eternal church service, uh, but an eternity of growing and building the relationship with God and Christ that we have started here. Yes, there will be times of worship, but it is the continuing and the building of the relationship with God and Christ. And it is the culmination, but yet also the beginning of how life was truly meant to be and that we might get to walk the gardens of heaven with God and with Christ, just like Adam and Eve walked in the Garden of Eden with God. That we might have a friendship or a relationship with God as Moses had with him in Numbers. We have this eternity offered up to us on a silver platter stained with the blood of Christ, and we choose to settle for what makes us most comfortable, like the Israelites. And so I encourage you at the end of this lesson Don't let this be a pearls before swine sort of situation. Learn from Deborah. Learn from the good that she did in her leadership and learn to be better than the people that she and the judges had to lead with the Israelites. Learn to be a strong leader like she was. Learn to stand on the promises of Christ. To really believe the things that you've been told in the Bible and to live a life that reflects that. And so I ask you, do you want to live an eternity in heaven or do you want just a comfortable life? And will you be able to do the things to reach that, to fulfill your side of the promise? You see, life life is like when the spies went out to go and look at Canaan and they saw the men who looked like giants and they looked like ants to them. Life is like looking at an army of 900 iron chariots, and all you got is foot soldiers. It's tough. It's really tough. And it seems insurmountable. And it seems the odds are against you. And that's temptation, and that's life, that it seems like you just can't overcome. But you got to be like Deborah. You've got to be like Caleb and Joshua in that situation. You have to have faith and trust in the Lord that you will come out victorious each and every time. God keeps his promises. He kept it to Deborah, kept it to Barack, kept it to Caleb and Joshua. God keeps his promises. You have only need to trust him. Thank you for your time.